0: Welcome. Thank you for coming to worship with us at Red Tree Church. It's a blessing to worship with you. I'm glad to have you join us, whether you're tuning in on Sunday morning or joining later. If you don't know me, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Red Tree. We're going to be in the fourth chapter of the book of Esther this morning, so please turn there in your Bible if you have one with you. We've been in the book of Esther for a while now. We took a break, couple weeks ago, and Mike preached about grace, which was an awesome message. I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it. But now we're going to jump back into Esther. I have to give you a heads up. Our passage here is one of the key passages in this book. I always feel humbled to be able to preach the Word of God, but I'm feeling that a little more heavily because of how important this passage is in the book of Esther and how incredibly culturally relevant right now it is. We're gonna be covering an entire chapter today. So we have a lot of work to do, so let's jump right into it. Um, But I wanna start by reminding us of where we're at in the story. Since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book, let me just give you a recap. So this story is set in the time period where the Jewish people have been conquered and the people of God are scattered around the world A group of Jews have been allowed to travel back to their homeland to rebuild Jerusalem. But this is not those Jews. uh, This story focuses on a group of Jews that live in Susa, which is the capital city of the Persian Empire. Now the story opens with King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, throwing a massive party for all the important people in his empire. The party lasts for 180 days of the king flaunting his wealth for all of his friends. And at the end, there's a week-long feast. At the conclusion of the feast, the king sends for his wife, Queen Vashti, to show her off to all of his friends. The queen refuses to come. Now, this kind of an insult to the king was a huge slap in the face. And so the king sends out a decree to the entire kingdom that basically said men were to be the ultimate masters of their own homes and that the queen was dethroned for not listening to him and he was going to pick a new queen. In order to pick a new queen, the king decided to appoint what was basically a royal beauty judge in every province. For real, this person's job was to collect all of the beautiful young virgins in their province and send them all to the king's harem in Susa. So as all of the beautiful young women in the kingdom are gathered up, a young Jewish woman named Esther is sent along with all the others. These young women are all gathered together and given to the care of the chief eunuch of the king's harem, and Esther gains favor with this guy. After a year of beautifying treatments, she gets her one-night shot with the king, and the king approves of her. He decides to make her his queen. One important thing to note about the new queen, Esther, is that her uncle, Mordecai, who raised her, counseled her to not reveal that she is Jewish, so no one knows this about her. Anyway, continuing with the story, Mordecai becomes a court official of some kind, a person with some influence, and then he discovers a plot to kill the king. He tells Esther. She tells the king in the name of Mordecai. The culprits are found and dealt with, but unfortunately, Mordecai doesn't receive any recognition or reward for saving the king. The story then pivots and turns to introducing the villain of the story, Haman. Haman is a man who appears out of nowhere and is promoted to basically the king's right-hand man. We find out that the king commands everyone to pay homage to Haman and everyone does so except for Mordecai. Sam told us about how the story pits Mordecai and Haman against each other because of their heritage, which you can go back and listen to. But basically, Mordecai feels that bowing down to Haman would be a betrayal of his heritage. Now Haman, being apparently a very rational person, decides to take revenge against Mordecai by completely destroying every single Jew in the empire. So Haman rolls some dice, he consults his gods, and he decides that the best time to kill all the Jews is in 10 months. And then he tells the king that he will pay him a ridiculously huge amount of money if the king will sign off on this plan to kill all of the Jews. The king agrees, and Haman has the royal decree sent out that in 10 months, all of the Jews will be destroyed. That's the story up to this point. Hopefully you've been following along and have been able to benefit from the incredible gospel applications that we've found so far in this book. Let's go ahead and jump into our story. So Esther, starting in chapter 4. with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathik, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Athach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days." Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your story here that you've presented to us. God, I pray that you would speak clearly to us, that you would illuminate your word to us and give us the message that you want us to take away from this. God, I pray that my words would uh, do justice to your scripture here that you would speak through me and uh, through this message to everyone who's listening, that they would be able to engage with your word and that you would speak into their hearts. Amen. All right. So I want to walk back through this chapter and highlight a couple things that I think are important for us. And then we're going to lean into talking about Esther and Mordecai a little bit more and shifts to talking about God's role in the story. Then I wanna finish up in 2 Corinthians by looking at how we should be impacted by this scripture. So the Jews in the Persian Empire are made aware that they're all going to die in 10 months. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sure that I would not have a clue how to handle something like that. A notification to all of your neighbors, friends, and government that life should continue as normal But in 10 months, they're all going to kill you and take everything you own. The overwhelming response from the Jewish people is to put on sackcloth and ashes, fasting and weeping and lamenting publicly. A sackcloth and ashes in the Old Testament is used as a way for the person to outwardly show the sincerity of an inward feeling. Generally, this feeling is grief and mourning over something, such as oncoming destruction or revealed sin. In this case... The imminent destruction of the Jewish people causes them to use this outward symbol to express to everyone around them how great their grief is. We should also know that this wasn't just a Jewish specific thing. A lot of cultures in the, uh, in the ancient times used this as a way to express grief. and The Persians in the story were at least well aware of what was meant by wearing sackcloth and ashes. So the Jews put on sackcloth and ashes, and they go out into public places to lament. Now, Mordecai specifically goes to his place of work, the king's gate, and sits outside publicly lamenting. The story doesn't explain why he does this, but it does say why he doesn't actually go into the king's gate, because it wasn't allowed to go into the king's gate wearing sackcloth. So Esther, who's not allowed to leave the palace, Hears that her uncle is publicly mourning in sackcloth and ashes, and she sends a eunuch with some clothes to get Mordecai to stop. We don't really know why Esther does this. She clearly doesn't know about the edict or about what's going on. Again, the author doesn't give us reasoning behind people's actions in this story. The story is just presented as is. So Mordecai sends the edict to Esther, along with a command to go and advocate for her people with the king. This is a notable shift in Mordecai. Up until this point, he had commanded Esther to not reveal who she was, her lineage, to the king. However, now that their people were in dire need, he thought it was time for Esther to reveal who she was. Esther hesitates at this, and she sends the messenger back saying that she is no longer the king's favorite as she had once been, and if she were to just show up without being called, she would most certainly be killed. It's also notable that this is the first time in the book that Esther does not immediately obey Mordecai. In chapter 2, verse 20, uh, it says that Esther still obeyed Mordecai just as she had when she was a child. Now Mordecai responds with what is the turning point of this chapter and really the central passage of this book. He says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Hearing this, Esther has a change of heart, and she responds, commanding Mordecai to gather all the Jews together, to set up a fast, and that she will go. She says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, there's a couple of important things we need to remember about what's going on. First, the king in Persian culture is extremely powerful and revered. Although the king here specifically had suffered some reversals in fortune uh, among his people, he was still all-powerful in his kingdom because of his role. Anyone who came before him without being called for was basically assumed to have instantly given up their life. Only the king raising his golden scepter could spare their life. Also, the king's word was literally law. Later in the book, we see that a king's edict, once sealed with his ring, could not be revoked. It was the law. Esther knows this. And further, she had lost her favor with the king. Without being crass, one of the functions that a king served in this time period was to be the example of virility to his kingdom. We've seen that this king, especially, seemed to have taken this to what would at least seem to us as an extremely depraved extent. He had a harem of women at his beck and call, and Esther, his wife, hadn't been called to him for a month. There isn't any explanation here of whether this is a normal time period of not seeing the king, but it seems like it's probably notable since Esther points it out. Especially when it's compared to the last time Mordecai told Esther to go tell the king something for him. And she was able to carry that out quickly enough to save the king's life. So essentially, Mordecai is asking a completely impossible task from Esther here. She has to find a way to go and speak to a king who she can't appear before without most likely dying. And, oh by the way... Even that king cannot revoke his own edict. No one can. His word was law. There is absolutely no possible way for that command that he had already given to be revoked. Esther's task is impossible. So this is the story here. I want to look a little more closely at Esther as a character in this story. Now, if you remember... Sam told us that Esther as a character is basically swept along throughout this story, at least up until this point. She makes no choices. She simply has things happen to her. However, The Book of Esther is a masterfully written, heroic story. It's an example of a heroic tale, and Esther is the heroine. And here in this chapter, we get to see this great shift in Esther, where she stands up and begins to make her own choices. Esther has an identity change here. She starts this chapter as the Persian queen, hiding who she is behind cosmetics and perfumes and lies, following her uncle's commands, and letting the king's eunuchs craft her lifestyle. There's two major things that mark this change in Esther here in this chapter. First, as I've already said, she stops being swept along by the happenings around her and the commands of others, and she starts making her own choices. We already saw that Esther follows all the commands of her uncle. But like Sam told us, everything just kind of happens to Esther. She's beautiful, so she's swept up to participate in the king's beauty contest. She's found favorable by the king's eunuch, so he provides her with all the cosmetics and trappings she needs. She follows his training on how to please the king. She's found favorable by the king, so she's made queen. Even in the great moment in the story up to this point of Mordecai saving the king's life, She's simply the mouthpiece that Mordecai uses to pass the message along. But here, Esther changes. She does not follow the command of Mordecai. Even once he persuades her to go and speak to the king, she doesn't just say, okay, I'll do it. Instead, she actually starts commanding him on what to do and making her own plans on how to complete the task. The second thing that is a marked change in Esther here is that up to this point, Esther has leaned heavily into the wisdom of the world for her successes. She hides her heritage because being Jewish might be seen as unfavorable. She spends a year undergoing intense beauty treatments before her turn with the king. She relies on the training of the king's eunuch on how to please the king. Now, Esther makes a decision to throw all of that wisdom out the window. She's going to reveal to the king her heritage, which by the way, now means that she is literally condemned to die. Not only that, but before going to see this king, who hasn't called on her for 30 days because he's probably been busy with other women, she's not even going to spend time beautifying herself or checking in with the king's eunuch to see what the latest top tips are to please the king. Instead, she decides to fast for three days. I don't know how many of you fast regularly, Um, but I don't think that fasting is probably a regular aspect of Esther's luxurious lifestyle. Three days is the longest I've ever fasted, and I was not in any way feeling at the end of that three days like having literally the conversation of my life with someone important. But that is what Esther chooses to do. So Esther, the heroine of the story, steps up into her role and begins to turn towards something other than worldly wisdom for leading. She decides to act even in the face of extreme danger to herself. Mordecai also has a pretty distinct change in this chapter. Previously, the things we know about Mordecai is that he chose not to return to Jerusalem, instead staying in Susa as an exile. He adopted his niece. He told her not to tell anybody that she was Jewish. He accepted a role in the king's court, probably gained through his connection to Esther somehow. He saved the king's life by hearing about a plot against the king, and he doomed the entirety of the Jewish race because he alone wouldn't bow down to Haman. Up to this point, Mordecai has not been presented as some hero of the faith. But here, we see that he turns to God's sovereignty as his argument to convince Esther. Now, just as a quick aside, I want to address the theme of God not being mentioned in Esther because he's not. He's not ever mentioned in Esther. This chapter especially has several large holes where it feels like the author really should have at least mentioned the name of God. However, it seems like this is a purposeful theme of this book. The author chose to do this on purpose. And I actually think that contained in this chapter is the reason for that theme Let's look again at what Mordecai says to Esther. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One of the primary themes of this book is that God doesn't always work through obvious miraculous events for his divine sovereign plan to be carried out. Sometimes he works in the background. Sometimes he works through unlikely people, like a girl who everything happens to and a man whose pride doomed God's chosen people. I want to look at two massive statements that Mordecai brings to the table here. Number one, God is sovereign and his plan will be carried out. And number two, Esther can choose to act if she wants to in accordance with God's plan or not. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time talking about the fact of God's sovereignty and control over the course of what happens. Scripture is clear on this. Let me just read a couple of scriptures for you. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Psalm 147 verse 5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Finally, Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I think it's sufficient to say God is sovereign over everything that happens in this world, and His plan will happen. He says, whatever the Lord pleases, He does, He will accomplish all of His purpose. So, with this being true, why doesn't Esther just sit back and watch as God saves His people? Why do we have a book where the people of God, who are the very people God promised to carry out His divine plan of salvation through, These people are saved by humans working human plans, and God is never even mentioned. The answer is simple. Honestly, it seems too simple, but it's true. God wants it to happen that way. For some reason, God chose to create people, and He chose to work His plan to reveal who He is through people. For some reason, God chooses to save His people through a person. In this case, the person, Esther in the grand scheme of history, the person, Jesus Christ. In this story, just like every single story in scripture, we see that the person in the story is pointing us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So the author of this book chooses not to mention God because God is working in the background. He's working through people. We know that God is sovereign. Mordecai says his plan will be carried out. God's people were always going to survive Haman. God promised to save the world through his chosen people and he always keeps his promises. So in this, why doesn't Mordecai just say, look Esther, God's going to save his people. So you don't really have much choice in the matter. Instead, he very clearly says that Esther has a choice. She can choose to speak up, or she can choose to stay silent. Let me say this clearly, and if I lost you at any point throughout this, tune in right now. Tune in for this. Esther could choose to participate in what God is doing, or she can stay silent. This is the crazy truth about God's sovereign plan. People get to choose to be a part of it or not. We can talk about predestination and election and salvation and all of that another time, but this very clearly lays out that Esther gets to choose to join God in his mission or not. This is kind of mind-blowing, and it changes who Esther is. She chooses. She chooses to completely reshape her identity, as we saw earlier, and she chooses to step into the mission of God. Esther chooses to be a mediator for her people. Again, this points to Jesus. In this story, Esther is the heroine, but she is still flawed. Jesus is the better Esther. Jesus is the great mediator. He mediated for us and won our salvation for all of eternity. Here's the gospel message. Like the people of God here, we were all facing destruction. We were facing destruction because of our sin, but Jesus chose to step up and be our salvation. But this is what's so important here. He didn't save us just to sit around. Jesus saved us for a purpose. He saved us for a calling. He gives each one of us the same choice that Esther had. We can choose to participate in what he's doing, or we can choose to stay out of it. Now, I think we should be mindful of Mordecai's warning here to Esther. He says if she chooses to do nothing, she will be destroyed. I'm not saying that if you don't go and preach the gospel to X amount of people that you are going to hell. But we should definitely think about what the result will be if we say we want Jesus' salvation, but not his mission. Do we want salvation from hell, or do we want to be with Jesus? because he is on mission, saving the lost. Again, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. We can't walk away from the sermon without discussing the extraordinarily relevant cultural implications for us of what Mordecai tells Esther here. She should not keep silent because she was created for such a time as this. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this, but hear me as your pastor say this. The world is full of evil. and We are confronted with the realities of evil daily. You should not keep silent when confronted by that evil. You were created for such a time as this. I would love to have a more in-depth conversation with you about this, but let me just say a couple of things. I can firmly say you should not keep silent that message does come with some warnings from Scripture. Scripture has a lot to say about this. It gives us clarity. There's three things I want to mention. First off, you should not keep silent, but what you say is extremely important. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our words are important, and they can have so much impact if we, like Paul, Speak not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power of God. Proverbs 18:21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. What we say matters. Second thing I want to point out from scripture is that our audience matters. Most of us probably know the famous passage from Matthew chapter 7 verse 6. It says, "Do not give dogs what is holy." And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus uses harsh words here to tell us not to waste our time with certain audiences. The way I like to frame this is with the question, where do you have a voice? Or rather, where do people listen to you? So many people speak and write so many things on the internet that most of us have lost our voice in that noise. But for most of us, we do have circles where we are heard, where people listen to us. Why waste our time with people who aren't listening when we could be focusing on giving the words of life to those who are listening? Find your circle. Find the people who are listening and focus on them. It could be coworkers, it could be neighbors, it could be your family, it could be children, it could be your neighbors, but you have a voice somewhere And thirdly pay attention to who you are speaking for proverbs chapter 31 verses 8 through 9 says open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute open your mouth judge righteously defend the rights of the poor and needy god tells us to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves for the destitute for the poor for the needy it can be really tempting to jump on a bandwagon Or speak out for those who don't really actually have need. But body of Christ, there are people all over the world who do not have a voice of their own. People who are destitute, people who are needy, and they need someone to speak up for them. Okay, I know that this is going super long, so let me wrap up. The words of Mordecai changed Esther. They made her stand up and step into the role that God was presenting to her the plan that he had for saving his people through her. Esther became a mediator for her people, a precursor to Jesus Christ, who became the true and better mediator for God's people of whom we are a part. You also have a role that God is offering to you. When Jesus saved you, he didn't just save you to live your life and then get to go to heaven. He saved you and invited you to be his disciple, to walk with him where he is going. And where Jesus is going is to the lost, to the poor, to the needy, to the destitute, to the broken sinners who are desperately in need of a mediator to save them. I want all of us to spend some time thinking about these words of Mordecai. I think God is calling us as a church to listen to them, to speak up, to step into the role he has for us. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because it's not a mystery what Jesus is inviting us into. I feel like I come back to this passage all the time, but it's so important. Listen to verses 16 through 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. God making his appeal through us. God is inviting you to be a minister of reconciliation. To be ambassadors for Christ. To be the way that God makes his appeal to sinners. It's an intense role. Look guys, just like Mordecai presents to Esther, we have a choice. God's perfect plan will happen whether or not we choose to follow along. However, he has presented to us the option to be his ambassadors, to be the ministers of reconciliation between a broken, sinful world and a God who desperately wants to make broken sinners into new creation. Let me just read Mordecai's words one more time. And then I'm going to pray. We should just sit on those words for a minute. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Let's pray. Father God, I confess that I too often am silent. God, I confess that I have stood back and watched evil passed before me, watched evil affect people in front of me, and I have sat silent. God, I confess that too often I choose not to participate in your mission. Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me for that. I pray that you would inspire me, that you would give me the strength to stand up, to speak out. Jesus, I thank you that you have invited me in to your mission. You have invited me to walk alongside of you. I thank you that you have invited us as a church, us as individual believers, to walk alongside you, to be disciple makers, to be ambassadors, to be ministers of reconciliation. Pray that you would give us the strength and the desire to take part in that role, to bring reconciliation to broken sinners. Jesus, I thank you so much that you love us, that you have saved us, you have invited us into your family, you've invited us to walk alongside you. Pray that you would give us courage to speak up, Courage to not be silent. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.